0: Well, hey there, my name is Bob Bryce, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church, and I'm so glad to be with you today during this most unusual Christmas season, right? Has anyone ever given you the silent treatment, or maybe you've given the silent treatment to someone else? You know, where you just stop talking to someone else because, you know, you're upset with them. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this really infuriating. And early on in our relationship, my wife Tammy and I learned that we're not particularly good at it either. Because uh, I know this probably isn't going to be a big surprise, but it turns out we both have a lot to say. So even when we've tried it out, it just doesn't ever seem to last very long. Now, for me, I think the reason that I really don't like it is I just don't like this feeling of leaving something unresolved. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it just... I don't like it when it's left hanging. Uh, Tammy actually taught me a little song here that kind of maybe sums up this feeling. Maybe you can feel this along with me. You ready for this one? Take me out to the ball game. Take me out to the fair bye. Me some peanuts and cracker jacks. I don't care if I ever get back. We will root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame for. It's one, two, three, strike shot at the old ball game. I really don't like that. I really don't like that. I don't know what it is about it, but I, I just I know that living in kind of this unresolved tension can be a real challenge. I imagine that's not just for me. I imagine that's for many people. But I really don't like it when there's nobody talking. Actually, I do like it when there's nobody talking. But when there's a conflict, I really don't like silence. But that's what God's people experience for about 400 years. It amounts to just nothing more than a page flip in our Bibles, but it's 400 years worth of time from the Old Testament, page turn, New Testament. But wow, that is a long time for God to be quiet. I I personally can't even imagine. And so we're going to take a look at this a little bit more deeply today, and I, I hope that together we can see... Just how God's people might have been ready to give up, and and, and really, who could blame them? But God wasn't done yet. God broke in with a plan that the world was, was certainly not expecting. Before we jump in, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together as your body. We thank you that you are good, and that you are merciful, and that, Lord, you keep your promises And so we ask now that that you give us ears to hear, that we might come to know you more deeply and and follow you more closely, and that you might transform us from the inside out. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time that we have together. We ask that you bless this, that we might encourage one another in faith as we gather in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, remember last week we talked about the disobedience of Israel and Judah and how that had led to some really serious consequences for their sin. The the, the ten tribes in the northern part, the, the northern tribes of Israel, were swallowed up into Assyria. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, was eventually taken over and taken into exile by the Babylonians in 587 BC. But God promised that was not going to be the end of the story. And it wasn't. After 70 years in exile, God intervened in a very strange way by allowing this guy named Cyrus. He was the the king of Persia, the Persian empire. And he allowed the Persians to come in and destroy Babylon, which is weird because Cyrus is, he's not a Jewish king or anything like that. He's He's from Persia, so he's a Gentile. But God chose him and allowed him to be the one that let the exiles from Jerusalem go back. He let them go back to Jerusalem. And so the exile was over. But just because it was over didn't mean that things would would ever be the same again. And so the people built another temple in Jerusalem. It was smaller than the one, it was smaller than Solomon's temple that had been burned to the ground. And, uh, you know, but nonetheless, it was a temple. And then they all lived happily ever after. Not quite. Even after all that disobedience and all of the punishment of the sins and, and all of the consequences, the people continued in their disobedience. In fact, in some ways, it intensified. And God continued to send more and more prophets to warn people that this was not going well and this would not go unpunished and not go unnoticed. But the, the people just remained defiant. So it all comes to a head kind of in the in the last book of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And, and that's this little short book from the prophet named Malachi. It's only four sh- very short chapters long. And I think if you take the time to read it, you'll notice that people just seem to be more openly questioning God. Not, not just about like whether or not God exists, but even like, is God even good? And, and they ask these questions um, and they continue to defy God with what almost seems like, like a little bit of an attitude, maybe a lot of attitude. And while we might be tempted now to, you know, kind of point our fingers at them and say, wow, these people are so bad. Take a look at the world around us today, right? What a mess. But but don't stop there. Take a look at the church today. The church as an institution is is a mess. But, But don't stop there either. Because what if we went all the way down and what if, what if we took a look at our own selves today? What if we look at us? Because in Malachi, God made some pretty direct accusations of the people. He accused the people of not worshiping him with their whole hearts. And, and he also accused them of, of not giving their first and their best to the Lord, but, but holding it back for themselves. And, and the Lord calls it robbing him of what is rightfully his and also for not working for justice for people but but instead doing things that are evil and then trying to pass them off as good or calling them good but of course we know just because you call something good doesn't mean it isn't evil but god wasn't fooled either but he also he also wasn't done with his people which which is good news so so on the one hand we have Again, another warning that judgment was coming. Yes, judgment was coming, but it was a different kind of judgment than anyone was expecting. And and there would also be this new plan that would someday be coming as well. But I'm sure the people wondered, well, <laughs> exactly when will it come? What will be the circumstances? How and when and, and, and where and all that kind of stuff. And that, it's... Left unresolved. It's left unresolved. The the only little clues we get are, again, in this this book of Malachi, all the way at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi 3, verse 1, God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then just one chapter later, in verse 5, almost at the very end of of the whole book, he says this, See, I will send the prophet Elijah... To you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And after that, God basically closed up shop. He went on silent mode. No more prophets to talk to the people. He was just really, really quiet. Eerily quiet. For 400 years. And the world Waited for a witness. The world waited for a witness. And then, all of a sudden, something changed. It's something unexpected. It seems like it just kind of comes out of nowhere. And it not only surprises the people, but it it also helps people to see how all of these little pieces of God's promises and God's plan, how all of these things were starting to fit together in a way that they never saw coming and they never were expecting. And, And in order for them to understand more about this, a witness, in fact, did show up. A witness comes to tell the people and to tell us, about it. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the gospel of John. It's the fourth gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And we're going to be looking at John chapter one in particular today. John chapter one. Now this, this is going to feel a little bit jumpy because the verses that we're going to look at are kind of sprinkled or scattered throughout some very famous other verses. And we're going to talk about why that is, because I believe it's on purpose that it is that way. But for right now, I'm going to read from John chapter one, and we're going to look specifically at verses six to eight, and then we're going to jump down to verses 19 to 31. So six to eight, and then 19 to 31. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And now here's where we jump down to verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. "'Are you the prophet?' he answered, "'No.' Finally they said, "'Well, then who are you? "'Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. "'What do you say about yourself?' John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, "'I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. "'Make straight the way for the Lord.' Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, "'Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, "'nor Elijah, nor the prophet?' "'I baptize with water,' John replied.' But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward them and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to all of Israel. And so, after four hundred years of silence, I, I know that I totally sympathize and would understand if people just kind of gave up. I mean, can can you blame them? Generation after generation of people that had heard this promise and yet had not seen any manifestation or result of that promise. There was was no God's messenger. Nothing was happening. Nobody was being sent. Nothing. But then, something. All of a sudden, there was something. a, A witness. A guy named John. Now, right up front, I have to tell you that this can get a little bit confusing here just simply because of the name John. Because the writer of this gospel is named John but then the witness sent by God here is also named John, but they're not the same John, okay? That's the important part, that you re- remember and know that these are not the same people. There's, there's John the gospel writer, and then there's John the witness, who other go- gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all refer to this, this John that in the gospel of John is referred to as a witness, they all call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. So is this clear as mud now? Uh, Don't worry, we're going to figure this out together as we go, but just remember that the the gospel writer and this other John are not the same person. And so if you know anything about the gospel of John, you'll know that the beginning verses are some of the most well-known in all of Scripture. I, I would even call them majestic because... The the language is so amazing, it's so sweeping, it's so big and transcendent, It's, it's cosmic in nature, and it talks all about who Jesus was before the foundations of the world, before the beginning of time, talks about who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and who Jesus will be. The word of God, and then God in the flesh, or God coming to earth and becoming human, and then living amongst his people in his creation. And then John writes about how Jesus is the light of the world and and how no matter what, the darkness cannot overcome that light. And then right in the middle of of all of that cosmic language and all this beautiful poetry, we have this line that says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. What? The man sent from God named John? I mean, what's he talking about here? Why is this verse even here? I mean, if you just if you take verses 6, 7, and 8 out of this entirely, it, it just works fine without it. So why is it there? Why, why would the writer put these verses in there? They feel like they're just kind of jammed in there. Well, I got to tell you that a lot of scholars and a lot of you know, Bible historians, they like to talk about all these different theories about why that is. And you can go down this rabbit trail and you can bore yourselves to death over it, but, but I think The better thing to do, the the wiser thing to do, is just to assume that John put these verses here for a specific purpose. He did this on purpose, and I think that purpose is so that we know that God calls people as his witnesses. God calls people, just like John, as his witnesses. Now, of course, God does not have to do it this way but he cho- for whatever reason he chooses to do it this way he's got his reasons and he chooses you know every day ordinary people just like you and me to be his witnesses in the world he chooses people just like this man named John but he also chooses uh, women named uh, Jessica and, and other men named Chris or other women named Christina god chooses just Everyday people, and he sends them to be his witnesses. And this John suddenly appeared on the scene to be a witness. And so I think that John, the writer, put these verses in here because it helps him start to accomplish the goal that he set out to do with writing this gospel. At the very end of the Gospel of John, he tells us exactly what he hopes to accomplish here. All the way at the end in, uh, in chapter 20, uh, verse 31, he says that he's written this, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But how would anyone come to know who Jesus is? And how would they know what he's done and what he is doing without witnesses to give testimony, to testify about him, and to ultimately point people to him? That's why I think John the witness, his little story is tucked right into the middle of these important verses that would be fine without them, but think God, the Holy Spirit, and John the writer have bigger purposes in mind and so that we can come to know how important this idea of being a witness for Jesus really is. We often underestimate this. And so I want to take a look at three important aspects of John's testimony today, his story that's tucked right in here in verses 6 to 8 and then again 19 to 31 is what we're going to look at today. Because I think as Christians, we tend to minimize the importance of being God's witnesses by, first and foremost, not really understanding what that really means or why we should care or or why we should do it. And I think John's testimony can help us with this greatly. And if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, my hope is that John's testimony here, going through this and talking about this, can, can help point you as well to a life-saving relationship with Jesus the Messiah the savior our rescuer i hope that we're able to point you to him today as we have this time together and so the first aspect of john's testimony is that it's simple it's simple The reality is that sometimes when we just think about this this whole thing, we can become overwhelmed by the idea of what it means to be a witness for Jesus because we just tend to make things more complicated than they need to be. And so, I mean, I understand this. When we hear words like witness and testimony... Well, we often can't help but think of like a, you know, a courtroom setting or a courtroom situation where, where you, know, you might have prosecutors and, and defense attorneys and, and a judge and a court reporter using that machine I will never know how to use, and maybe even a bailiff. Uh, and all of the, this kind of imagery and thinking about this can contribute to us feeling you know, inadequate, uh, unprepared, uh, and certainly in, intimidated. But it doesn't have to be that way. I want to tell you an example. A few years ago, I sold uh, my shares of a company. It was an energy efficiency consulting business. And there were three different partners in that. And uh, I I always felt like I was stuck in the middle because the other two partners could not get along with each other. And it absolutely drove me, let's say bananas, drove me bananas. I could not take being stuck in the middle anymore. And so, (laughs) I think this doesn't surprise you, but no sooner did I get out of the business than each of them sued each other, of course, because that's, you know, why wouldn't? Uh, This went all the way to an actual trial, believe it or not. I was shocked, but I was more shocked when I found out that both of these people wanted to call me as a witness. Me, a witness. I, I felt unprepared, of course. I was nervous. I thought, what a mess this turned out to be. I tried everything I could to get out of it, honestly, but then somebody just said to me, Bob, all you have to do is just tell the truth about what you saw and who you saw doing it and how it affected the overall business. Oh, yeah. I thought to myself, well, if all I have to do is just share my experience, my perspective, how I saw things, well, I can certainly do that because that's what a witness is, right? A witness is just simply someone who tells the truth about what they saw, about what they heard, and and what they experienced. A witness is not responsible for for arguing the case or or making final judgments about anything or, or really even answering questions that they don't know the answer to. That's not what a witness does. A witness simply tells the truth about their experience. That's it. And so, when God sends us out as His witnesses, and we're, we're called to be His witnesses, it's not for us to argue somebody into faith, and and to uh, to use all of our eloquent words and our manipulation to try to to gain somebody to to agree with us. That's not what we're doing at all. We're simply just called to share our experience by saying. Hey, this is who I am, this is who I believe Jesus is, and this is how Jesus has changed my life. Now, I'd really like to introduce you to him because I believe he'll change your life too. It's simple. See how his testimony is just very simply stated in verse 29. look at that again. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here it is. This is the testimony. Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And so his testimony is not complicated. It's simple. It's to the point. Yes. Yes. But here's another thing. It's also filled with humility. I don't know if you caught that. It's it's filled with with humility. And that's the second aspect that we want to look at today about John's testimony. John is humble. He's humble. Now, did you notice how much effort John, the witness, puts into trying to take away attention from him and instead refocus people onto Jesus? Jesus. They asked him if he was the Messiah. And in verse 20, remember, he says, I am not the Messiah. Then they asked him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Well, now why were they asking these kinds of questions in the first place? Well, first off, remember the promise that we just talked about earlier in Malachi. Remember how God did say, even though it was before he then kind of was really quiet for a long time, before that, he said, eventually, he was going to send his messenger. So it's understandable that that people were kind of on the lookout for God's messenger. Who, Who would this be? Where would they come from? And... So they show up and they start asking these types of questions, especially because of how popular this John guy was suddenly becoming. And now, like I mentioned before, all four of the Gospels give an account, and then he's mentioned in other parts of the New Testament as well, but they give an account of this person most commonly referred to as John the Baptist. Now, I've been calling him John the witness, and I'm going to keep calling him John the witness because in the gospel of John, that is the primary thing that that, uh, John the writer wants us to understand throughout, is this witness. You see this term over and over again, the witness, witness, witness. Being a witness to the centrality of the message of who Jesus is, is the hallmark of the gospel of John. And so in Mark's gospel, Mark talks about John the Baptist, and he calls him John the Baptist, and he says about him that all the people were going out to find him and to be baptized by him. Well, that's quite a statement, all the people, and you, you can't really have something that all the people are going to without somebody taking notice, right? And, and, and who do you think noticed? Well, the religious leaders, for one, they wondered, well, wait a minute, what the world is happening out in the desert? So they mounted an investigation. They they wanted to get to the bottom of it. And so they sent a team of, you know, religious elites, religious experts, including priests and Levites. They went out there to find out who this John guy thinks he is, what exactly he's up to, and then also, how are they going to put a stop to it? Right? Because he was getting an awful lot of attention, and it seems like he was doing a lot of kinds of you know, religious activities and things like that, which is their area of expertise. And so they they want to know, well, who does he think he is? And So there's John the Witness out here. He's getting all this attention, and he wants none of it. Matter of fact, he keeps trying to deflect it. Are you the Messiah? No, are you? He wants to keep directing attention away from him. He desperately wants to stay out of the way of what's really important. Over and over again, in one way or another, he just keeps telling people basically like, look, I am not an, an important guy. I'm, not a, I'm just a guy named John, but I am trying to point you towards someone who is important. I'm pointing you to someone else who is important. And I I think that that is a really vital part of what it means to be a true witness to Jesus. As individuals and as a church, we need to be asking ourselves on a regular basis, who or, or what are we pointing people to? Who or what are we pointing people to? Is it Jesus Or is it someone or something else? Because even without intending it, we can just slowly start to shift things into making them more and more about us, more about what we think, more about what we want, and more about what we do, right? I mean, we're so good at this as people. It just, it comes naturally. And and so maybe a different way to to ask that question. I've been struggling with this since I wrote it. But think about this. Do you want people to know Jesus for their sake or yours? Do you want people to know Jesus for their sake or yours? Now, that's a pretty devastating question. Has been for me. Just, Just listening to it sounds offensive, doesn't it? But think about it. Think about it just for a minute. If we share our faith, if we give our witness, if we share our testimony about Jesus, because we think that somehow God then will be happy with us for doing it, well, then who are we really thinking about, right? Who are we really thinking about then? Or, or if we share our faith because we think, well, if I can just get this person to... Um, come to know Jesus, then maybe it might benefit me in some way. Maybe they'll be easier to get along with, or maybe they'll see things my way. But if that's the case, then who are we really loving in that situation? You know, I think about the the Instagram influencer era we're currently living in. You know, here, here we have these celebrities and We have people with lots of followers, and they they share a message about a product. And then, of course, people just, they can't wait to buy it up. They they run right after it. Not because the product is good, because it typically isn't, or that they even want it, but they go after it and they buy it simply because the messenger or the influencer endorsed it. This is very troubling, and it makes its way into the church as well. And it's, it's this type of dangerous, I would call it hyper-elevation of the messenger that has produced something far more terrifying. It's a, it's a phenomenon known as the celebrity pastor, where very subtly everything just starts pointing to the pastor or the pastor's personality rather than to the person of Jesus. But this is a no-go. This whole thing is totally incompatible with what John is teaching us about what it means to be a true witness to Jesus. A little bit later, John comes up again in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, uh, verses 28 to 30. This is John, the witness, talking to some of his students about himself. And he says, You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. And so, in other words, as important as it is to God that we are his witnesses, we should never consider ourselves greater or or even close to the one who our testimony points to, the one who our testimony reveals. Remember, John the witness says that the one he's pointing people to is so much, so vastly more important than him that he is not even worthy to untie His sandals, that's like the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of jobs people could do. He says he's not even qualified for that. So John is indeed humble. He's humble. But that doesn't mean that he isn't also bold. And so that's the final aspect of John's testimony that we're going to look at today. John's testimony is bold. His boldness comes across in both his conduct and his content, because it's rooted in the fact that that he has a confidence in who he is in relation to God. He's got a relationship with God, and therefore he has an identity and he understands who he is and part of knowing who he is and, and what his role is and what it means is knowing who he isn't right? It's knowing who he isn't. He's already said he's not the Messiah. he's, He's not Elijah, at least in the physical sense anyway. He's not Jesus. He's not the prophet. And he's definitely not a celebrity pastor. So who is he then? In response to these religious leaders that want all these answers, they want to know who he is and what he's doing and why he's doing it and all that kind of stuff. This is what he says in verse 23. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. So he says, he's the voice. But did you hear what the voice was saying? This is not just any voice. Do you recognize that little phrase from last week, from when we looked at Isaiah chapter 40? Because God promised that his everlasting word was was coming to his people to fulfill this promise that he had made to David for this everlasting throne. That someone from David's line would sit on that throne forevermore. And so John, the witness, John's voice is the hinge point between the old and the new, between what was coming to an end and what was just beginning. In other words, John's testimony shifts from the prophets who were saying, he is coming, he is coming, he is coming. And John himself was saying he is coming, but then it shifts. Remember, he says, there he is, as he points to Jesus. There he is. There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John gives voice to the promised word of God by testifying or or witnessing to who Jesus is and what exactly he came to do. To proclaim that Jesus is God in the flesh who came to do exactly what John said, to take away the sin of the world. That's that's the same kind of witness that God calls you and I to be in this world. Because he loves this world so much. He continues to send and dispatch messengers that will tell other people this good news and point people to Jesus. And so if you're, if you're already a follower of Jesus and you know and you trust him as Lord and Savior, then guess what? You already have a story to tell. You have a story. You have a testimony to share. And if you, like I've been, if you've also been unsure or hesitant before as to whether or not, you know, God is really sending you, I, I want you to hear the words of your Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. I want you to hear these words today. Later on in John chapter 20, he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That means you. You means me too. But it doesn't just mean clergy, or it doesn't mean called or official pastors. It doesn't mean people on staff at a church. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that all of us are called to be witnesses to who Jesus is. There's no way around this. The disciples were told very clearly, you will be my witnesses in the world. And so, know today that Jesus is calling you as his witness. Jesus is calling you and me as his witness. And so be bold. You're not making this up. You're not doing this alone. Be humble and be willing to tell your story. All the while pointing people to Jesus. And if you're unsure about all this or you don't know Jesus yet then then please know this that Jesus whose birth we celebrate this most unusual Christmas season Some things never change. We still celebrate the coming of God in the the flesh. That's what we're talking about. Jesus is none other than God who has taken on flesh and bones, who came to take away the sin of the world, your sin, my sin, and now he calls out to you, right, right now, right now through the sound of my voice, and he says, I forgive you. Peace be with you. Come home. Be my witness. Amen.